You know, I've been coming here for a lot of years, and almost every Wednesday night, Danelle says, I guess I'll behave. I'll, I'll do what they want me to do. And I'm thinking, I'm looking around the room, who is they? I mean, is there something? So just once in like my lifetime, I'd like for you just to, you know, in the Holy Spirit misbehave while I'm standing there. That's all I'm trying to say. Just go ahead. Because, because if that's code for the white guy is preaching, I'm going to be really ticked off. Be really ticked off. Uh, let's, let's start off the year right. All right, let's just go. For it. I'm going to behave. Come on. I'm having to work through some oppression tonight. I, you guys know, most, some of you I don't know, don't know, I look forward to meeting you, but I think most of you know that Bev and I split our year between Nashville and Alexandria, and of course I, I help out here. And you guys would not believe the persecution I deal with when I travel about the Redskins. I'm just telling you that I, I deal with some serious slings and arrows. Now, it might be that I get up and talk smack during my entire speech about the Redskins, so people actually ask me, are you going to preach about Jesus or Cousins? Are you going to preach about Jesus or Morris? So tonight, I, I couldn't wait to get here. First of all, it's my first time in the building. Thank you. Wow. I, I couldn't, couldn't get here in December when everything was ramping up, but I'll be here for the dedication service. So I couldn't wait to see the building, couldn't wait to see my friends, and couldn't wait to be around some Redskins fans. Oh, no. But I walk in, and the first guy I say, hey, Redskins, he goes, I'm not really a Redskins fan. I'm going to look away from the man who said that, by the way. I'm not even going to look at him. Second guy walk, eh, you know, it's, they're doing well, but I'm, I'm not really a Redskins fan. Third guy, I'm in tears back there in the green room, just on the floor in a fetal position. Is there anybody in here who is, you know, kind of excited about this? Can I just... Yes! Uh, Could we start some, just go back there and start some deliverance while I'm preaching and we'll just, (laughs) hey, let's get to it. I'm going to be talking out of three scriptures tonight. First is Genesis 11. If you want to turn there, I'm really bad about getting them my notes in advance. Forgive me. Um, But I'm going to speak out of Genesis 11. I'm very, very excited about this series on prayer because of all, it's just right in season with what God's doing here. It's what we need in our world. Every time you turn on the TV, every time you read an article, see what's happening in the world, we need some people who know how to intercede and do covenant prayer and and really stand in the gap. That's what God says he's looking for. His eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. How does he know we're fully committed to him? Well, part of that is serious intercession and standing in the gap. So tonight, I'm pretty excited about what I'm going to say tonight because this doesn't just apply to a church, doesn't just apply to, uh, you know, what we do in ministry. It applies to your family. It applies to your friends. It applies to many of the things you're involved in. So uh, I'm going to cut right to it and probably before the night's over, tell you some stories that uh, you haven't heard before about prayer movements in history. So tonight, I want to start off and get very practical at the end, and I want to talk to you about prayer covenants, prayer covenants. And I have the privilege of sort of launching our series tonight, and I I just want to give you a taste of what it looks like in Scripture and what it's looked like in history to pray prayer covenants, because this is where we're going. Now, I was here uh, about a month ago, and I did a talk about mirrors, some of you were there for, and I I talked about a principle, which is the, the law of first mention. When something's first mentioned in the Bible, it sets up the framework of understanding for the rest of the Scriptures. So let me just take you to Genesis 11 and read the first mention 
of a principle that you're going to see very clearly. I'm sure you've seen it before. And then we'll take it to the New Testament and see this played out. And then I'll tell you some stories. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Reading from God's version of the Bible, the NIV. Now, (laughs) visitors are like, well, who is this guy? Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Now, you know we call this Tower Babel or various names for it. But the bottom line is the people are trying to unify themselves in their own power and their own strength. So they're building a tower. But watch what God says. The whole story, I think, is worth it, certainly because it's history and it's it's true. But look at what God says. The Lord said, verse 6, If as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now that's the Lord God of the universe talking. And he's looking at a bunch of stinky pagans building a pagan tower, I'm making this up as I go, and build a pagan tower so they can unify themselves in some ungodly way. And the Lord comes down and he says, there's a a principle, there's a truth, there's something true in operation here. If as one people speaking one language, they do this, God says, this wasn't some weak enemy across the continent or, you know, some newscast or something. God says, then nothing will be impossible to them. God doesn't say that very often. He doesn't say that very often. So we have established here in this otherwise disturbing story, a principle, a truth of the power of unity, the power of saying the same things, the power of of what is possible when a people unify in a cause. Now, there's not a lot of other definition, but there it is. When you come to this, you see this is a truth of God, and you have to think in your brain, more is coming in the Word as we keep on reading. Now, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Jesus restates this principle. And so in Matthew 18 and verse 19, you jot this down, I'll read it to you, it's up to you. Matthew verse 18, and we're still in the NIV. Jesus says, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, there's all kind of prayer. All kind of prayer. And don't let anybody make you think there's just one kind of prayer or you got to do it the way a certain group of people do. Sometimes we're just cutting loose and being let by the Spirit and crying out to Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it's loud. Sometimes it's quiet. Sometimes it's got music. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, there are all kinds of ways to pray. But the way that I'm describing tonight is one we need to include in our arsenal, particularly in this season of this church, And particularly in the season that many of us are in, in our lives. 
because this is a bit more strategic prayer. This is a little bit more of a planned prayer. First of all, it says that Jesus says you've got to have two people. And then they've got to have a conversation because they've got to get an agreement about what they're going to pray. Then they stand together in that unity and in that agreement, and Jesus shows up in their midst. Thank you very much. So, so this is a little bit different, a little bit different. But I want to tell you and set this up even before I show it to you in the book of Acts with the early church doing it, that all throughout history, when believers have just taken a little time and said, we're going to think through what we're going to pray, we're all going to get on the same page, we're going to evoke the same scriptures, what are the promises of God that relate to what we're asking for, we're going to do something unique, and then we're going to pray it together. God did powerful, history-changing things. It's one thing, for example, for you to pray for your family as an individual or husbands and wives. It's another thing to get the believers in your family agreed upon the promises of God and the strategy of God and to hammer heaven until the kingdom of darkness is destroyed and people are set free. You see the difference. It's not that it's better than just you know, praying other ways or praying individually, but it is what God uses. Now, if you want to see this acted out, look with me if you want in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We tend to kind of breeze over this story and think they're just having a prayer meeting. But let me show you that what the early church was doing was exactly what I've just described. In verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have just been released from prison and are going back to their own people. And they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. In verse 24, And when they heard this, the people meaning, the people who had heard their report, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, I don't expect you to be able to read Greek. I mean, most of us don't study Greek. But the word, therefore, together, does not just mean they made a loud noise at the same time. They were praying the same thing. They were saying the same syllables. They were, they, this was not just everybody shouting at the same time, which is absolutely a legitimate, of course, expression of prayer, right? Uh, sometimes we don't have a chance. We, I mean, don't have a choice. We just shout and everything starts happening. But, but here, they are coming together and agreeing on what to pray. And the way that we have that confirmed is that what they pray took some planning, took some preparation. People had to go and get some Old Testament scripture, and people had to think through what they wanted to pray. And every indication from the, from the original language and the story is that they agreed on what to pray, and they prayed it together powerfully. And by the way, consistently, listen to this prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. It's a quote, isn't it, from the Psalms? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal. And perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And listen now, verse 31. How many of you want this to happen? And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. 
I could use a holy earthquake, couldn't you? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now they had prayed before. Jesus had prayed. Jesus had taught them to pray. They had prayed. But there was a special form of power that was released when they prayed in a, in a prayer covenant. They went to the word. They discerned God's will for the season. They brought the scriptures to the fore. They looked at the promises of God and they sounded out together. And in response to that, the earth was shaken. Now, some of you don't know who I am. I have kind of a professor of history at some schools and what have you. So I'm going to take you on a little history lesson because I want you to see that prayer covenants have changed history time and time again. And they have done so in seasons that are as dark as we are in now. Do not believe the lie of the enemy that this is the worst time that's ever been. I mean, I have a 95-year-old mother-in-law, and God forbid some 20-something sound off about how recently the economic times were worse than the Great Depression. I mean, it's painful to watch. I live through the Great Depression, she starts off, and then she grabs them by some clothing so they can't leave the kitchen, you know. Here, have a cookie and shut up. I mean, she just goes off. So don't believe that. However, we're living in some dark and some difficult times, and what we want to learn how to do is to pray in unity, pray in a prayer covenant, and change things. Change things. There is a principle in Scripture of unity and agreement. And if we're really going to change our family and its course, if we're really going to change our marriages, if we're really going to change perhaps our companies or our ministries or things in this church or things in our city, we're going to have to get like-minded people together around the promises of God, all of them saying the same things. And for some reason, Jesus promises his presence and he demonstrates his power when that happens in a way that he doesn't at any other time. It's just stunning. Now, let me give you a quick example from history. Just after we became a nation and people began to pour out of the, what had been the colonies into the, into the territories over the Appalachians, there was a place in Kentucky where all the bad guys, all the criminals gathered. It was called Rogue's Harbor. And all the guys who were escaping the law, all the criminals, the thieves, the, uh, just every kind of nasty thing that the human beings could do, all those kind of people gathered there. And there were hundreds, even thousands of basically criminals who dominated this area and built the town around crime and immorality. And, and it was very, very well known. And, and we have quotes from governors and quotes from uh, you know, people who were trying to develop law and order. And they said, we, nobody can even go in there. Well, there was a guy named James McCrady. And you got to picture James McCready as a cross between Daniel Boone and Billy Graham. Uh, this man was a preaching machine, but he wore buckskin, and he carried, you know, the old rifles and all that kind of thing, and he had a coonskin cap. I mean, it's the whole act. But he was a man of God. And he went in there, and he saw what he was up against. And there were not very many believers in the area. You can imagine, that maybe, maybe a thousand criminals and maybe 10 or 20 believers. But he did something that changed the history of our nation because he pulled together the believers in a prayer covenant. And we know exactly what he did. 
we know exactly what he said because people wrote it down. So he, he said there's a universal spirit in this area of deadness and stupidity. I've always liked that. Most preachers won't talk about you know, folks being stupid, but this guy just said they're not only dead, they're stupid. I, I don't know. I like it. So what he did was he wrote up a prayer covenant and he got the few believers to pray according to what I'm about to read. This is one of the great prayer covenants in history. And it says this, when we consider the word and promises of a compassionate God to the poor lost family of Adam, we find the strongest encouragement for Christians to pray in faith and to ask in the name of Jesus for the conversion of their fellow men. No one ever went to Jesus when he was on earth with the case of a friend that they were denied. And although the days of his humiliation, meaning his earthly life, are ended, yet for the encouragement of his people, he has left it on record that when two or three agree on earth to ask in prayer, believing it shall be done. Again, whoever you shall ask, whenever, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, that will I do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now that's the preaching, but here's where they go. They said, therefore, we bind ourselves together to observe the third Sunday of each month for one year as a day of fasting and prayer for the conversion of sinners in Logan County, it's in Kentucky, and throughout the world. And we also engage to spend one half hour every Saturday evening, beginning at the setting of the sun, and one half hour every Sabbath morning at the rising of the sun in pleading with God to revive his work. Let me just make sure we're clear here. About 1,000 people, about 20 believers and a buckskin Billy Graham. But he pulled them together in a prayer covenant that he actually wrote out. They all signed it, and they prayed according to, to what we see here, the third Saturday, and last thing on Saturday night, and first thing on Sunday, and they prayed for months, and nothing happened. And they kept praying. And eventually, uh, we have uh, two stages that happen. One, and it's amazing that we have this in our documents. I'm sure you weren't taught this in history class, but we have this in our documents. He says, a remarkable spirit of prayer and supplication came on the believers. They started to not only pray according to what they'd covenanted, they went beyond that because the Lord answered them in their covenant by giving them a supernatural power to pray and intercede. They would come together and compare notes, and the Lord would be showing them the same thing. They said, our, our heartfelt burden of the dreadful state of sinners who are not in Christ is being expressed to God, and we were in childbirth. Finally, in 1800, the Spirit of God was poured out while McCready was preaching. And I want you to understand the size of this thing. Initially, it was just a revival in a house. In fact, he's, uh, I, I think it's, it's kind of funny. They had Methodist and Presbyterian preachers together. And the Methodists were revival-oriented, and the Presbyterians decidedly weren't. And so a guy said, oh, they're in the house, and the Holy Spirit begins to move, and the Presbyterians don't really know what to do. And a Methodist guy says, a woman in the east end of the house shouted tremendously. And I left the pulpit to go to her, and several said, you know, it's really funny how this is written. You know, these Presbyterians, they're much for order. They're not going to put up with this, you know, because the Holy Spirit's starting to be poured out. He said, I turned to go back and I was near falling. The power of God was so strong upon me. And I turned again and rather than exhorting this woman to silence, I exhorted her to continue to shout for the spirit of God had come. Now, you will not believe how big this revival got. 
The Holy Spirit was poured out right there in Rogue's Harbor. A revival began that gathered steam throughout the years. And eventually, you had camp meetings. This is where the word is born. Uh, great big, huge open fields with preaching stands on the edge. And the preachers would preach. And there it is recorded that at one time in Kentucky, and this was for months at a time because, again, they were camping, there were 25,000 people there to hear the word preached and to experience the, the fall of the Holy Spirit. At that time, the largest city in Kentucky was 1,500 people. It was Lexington. So you had more people in the state to attend the revival and be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit than you had living in the state. How did it happen? Because 20 or maybe 25 people said, we're in a mess, but the promises of God prevail. We are going to get on the same page. We're going to quote the same scriptures. We're going to pray at the same time, and we're going to see this thing broken. And they dug a well or bombarded heaven or whatever phrase you want to use, and they opened the way to a work of God's Spirit that continues to this day. You can draw a line from that outpouring of the Holy Spirit to pockets of revival and fire churches in this country that have never ceased to be places of revival since the 1800s. I know that we're talking about the decline of Christianity and everybody's the kind of, you know, the world's kind of down on it, but I'll tell you, when believers pray believing, the Lord shakes the place. And I've always been amazed. You know, we, we grieve about our, maybe the way our families are going or, or what have you, but the Lord is often waiting for those who are believers to get on the same page, claim the same promises, pray in some systematic way, and take hold of God's purposes for that family. That may be why there's so, so much strife in some families, because God, the devil's trying to keep the believers from coming in unity. It's one of the few times that Jesus says, you guys, get, you guys finally get over your stuff and get in unity and get in agreement on my word. I'll be there. Stuff will start happening. Now think about that for just a moment. Could that be part of the reason for the brokenness and the, of the body of Christ throughout the years? Could that be part of the reason? You know, let's just talk for a moment about one of the big issues that we deal with in our, word, in our world, which is Islam. But let me tell you that part of the way that Islam was born was that Muhammad was a man who led caravans, uh, you know, great camel caravans all around the Middle East, and he saw the Christians in all sorts of places, and he said, I admire them to many, in many ways, but they are broken up in little factions, and they're fighting, and they're divided, and that's one of the things that moved him to start the religion of Islam, was the brokenness of the body of Christ. Come on. Maybe part of the answer to some of the devastations that we see in our world is that the body of Christ reverses that course, comes together, comes together in unity, and sees whole cities changed. I want you to be passionate in prayer. We want you to have a spirit of prayer and supplication, as the Old Testament prophets have said. But there's also a place to stand together and get strategic and to sense what God is doing. What does God want to do in your family? What is the destiny of your family? What's the destiny of your company? Maybe you move, maybe you, you, know, you, go, you, tend to, you work for some gigantic corporation, but there are believers who could pray. We don't even have to get in the same room. Just get on the same page and bombard heaven at the same time. These people didn't meet together. They just prayed at the same time. And God gave a nation-changing revival. A nation-changing revival. What does God want to do? I was talking to an intercessor 
in Nashville here not long ago. And, uh, and she was in some, a bunch of prayer meetings and so on. And, and she, finally, in her own prayer life, uh, she began to sense that the Lord wanted her. It was as though he'd said, you know, you might want to find out what I want to do before you start shouting at me to do stuff. You, you know what I mean? I mean, I mean, he is God. Have you ever heard somebody pray? I don't mean to be mean here. But by the way, I need to clock on, uh, guys, if you could, because I have no idea what time it is. And I don't want to stay till 10 or 11. I'm happy to stay till like, you know, 9.55. But I just need to know what time it is. So you ever heard somebody pray, now, Lord, you're just going to have to do so-and-so. Lord, you know, you know, Lord, we just insist that you do so-and-so. I'm thinking, I'm stepping back to let the lightning strike your bony backside. He is the Lord God of the universe. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows why he created you. He knows why he created everybody in your family. He knows what's supposed to happen. He knows the end from the beginning. We might want to seek him for his will. And maybe our prayers would be answered faster if we get on his page rather than try to pull him onto ours. You you understand what I mean? What does he want to do? How about we pray a little bit about, you know, what he wants to do, and then get ourselves in agreement. So, so what were they praying there in Rogue's Harbor? They were praying the scriptures. Lord, you want to save sinners. That's why you came. You've got a harvest here, and even though we can't see any breakthrough, you want to do something, so give us the words. And they agreed on the scriptures, and they wrote it out, and they prayed for months, and the nation was changed. We, we, we can't really see it sitting here in this room, but I can assure you in a crowd this size, that somewhere in, in the family lines, back through the years of people sitting in this room, that revival touched our lives because it led to Azusa Street. It led to the charismatic renewal. It led to every nation. It led to Brett Fuller. You, you follow what I'm saying. It all was a great tide that kept on washing. But somebody had to break through. Somebody had to take hold. And they had planned it like an invasion. They planned it uh, like, they, like they were moving in on a great invasion of a nation. Now, I want to tell you about another one, too, that, that it will just absolutely stun you. During the American Civil War, there was um, a, a time in the history of the Southern forces when the chaplains were aware there was a horrible spiritual depression amongst the soldiers. Let's, let's not get into you know, the broader issues of the war. We all know where we stand on that. But just for a moment, watch, watch what happens here. And these chaplains said, we need to see Jesus move. And so they worked up a prayer covenant. A guy named Reverend H. Milliken wrote this prayer covenant out. And it said basically three things, that the souls of the vast multitudes are too precious to be abandoned. Number two, that God is able to give his own called ministers the victory even among soldiers and that the chaplains should enter into a covenant of prayer for each other, and that all should at once begin protracted meetings of preaching and intercession. There was a revival amongst the Confederate forces that was so powerful that I have read secular historians who said that part of the reason, not the whole reason, but part of the reason that the war came to an end, the South Bay, was that the revival began to happen, people began to repent, and the fighting spirit went out of the troops. Secular historians have said a revival began to happen, and the hatred and the bitterness and the views of slavery began to change because the Spirit of God was poured out. 
Now, I know you're thinking, this is a preacher making up history. No, I'm telling you what secular historians have said, because these prayer covenants can change history. Here's what's also exciting. One of those chaplains had a fellow chaplain friend in the Union forces in the north, and he got it to him uh, kind of surreptitiously. So now you've got the same covenant the chaplains in the south are praying, the chaplains in the north are praying. What happens? Revival happens amongst their troops. And when the war was over, some of these north and south troops who had been in revival came together and formed churches that were revival centers, north and south blended together. Only the power of God can do that. We're still dealing with the bitterness of that war in our society, but at that time, God was giving an alternative. Why? Because men and also women of God, wives back home, we know that letters involved women in this who were on the battlefields, they prayed prayer covenants and changed history. That war came to an end in part because God was moving in the souls of people who had been moved by hatred and racism and bitterness. And you know all of that very well. And what changed it? A powerful outpouring of the Spirit of God because perhaps 20 or 25 chaplains in an army began to pray a prayer covenant. Now, I don't want us to just be uh, excited about this. I, I want us to put it into practice. So let's go back to Genesis 11. I'm just going to quote it to you. If as one people, so this is the first principle, how do we get in agreement about what God wants to do? You know, the Lord has his will. He has his purposes. He has things he wants to accomplish. Our old Pentecostal and, and, and charismatic ancestors used to say, let's seek the mind of the Lord. They were right. Let's find out what he wants to do. Let's find out what his purposes are. The plans of the Lord continue from generation to generation. Well, what does he want to do? What does he want to do in Chantilly? What does he want to do in, in D.C.? What, is he, what does he want to do in the Smith family, the Jones family? What does he want to do in that next missions trip? What does he want to do in the schools that some of you represent? What does he want to do on the teams you represent. We already know that the most righteous team in the world is the Redskins, but I'm saying, what does he want to do? Rob, you can help me out. What does he want to do? Have you even thought about that? I'm not rebuking you, but have you thought about that? What is God wanting to unleash in your family? You might look around and say, well, you know, we're all believers. It's cool. Well, you may all be believers and thank Jesus for that, but there is a greater destiny to be released. The purposes of his heart continue from generation to generation. He's chosen us. And when you got saved, you remember Paul, Philippians 3, about verse 12, says, I want to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. If your entire family is believer, are, are believers, that's great. But what are they meant to be taking hold of? Let's find out what it is. And then let's get an agreement. And then let's put some scripture to it. What are the scriptures that God wants to activate in our prayers? Because the second thing in this, in this principle, in this, in this word here, is if they speak the same thing. If they speak the same thing. I, I hope that you will understand, and we all need a fresh revelation of this, that what's beginning here is not just about this church. It's not just about this week's fast. It's not just about a Wednesday night series on prayer because it was just time in the rotation. No, this is a sovereign prompting of God because he wants to shake what previously has not been shaken. 
I, look, can I just ask you and, and refer to my own heart? I stepped into this new year and felt dissatisfied. I, I felt, uh, I, you know, nothing was wrong. I'm not hinting at anything. Nothing was wrong. But I, somehow I just felt, you know, constricted in some way. And I think maybe the Lord let me feel that. So I would say, no, 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 we're not going to do this. I had a free and powerful year last year. I'm not letting the enemy come uh, and restrict me. Or, or maybe the Lord kind of put a greater weight of glory you know, in my life a little bit as the year came. I came into the new year, but, 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 my, but the rest of my life wasn't uh, expanded with it. I don't know. But somehow it felt tight. And I'm telling you what I'm doing. I'm pushing back in the name of Jesus. My wife and I got in agreement because, because you will get in agreement with Bev when it comes to prayer. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Any men here, just say amen with me. Thank you. I love it. No, I love it. Because I'll put, I'll put up with something for about 10 years, but not her. No, 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 that's not going to happen. That's not going to continue to tomorrow morning. Get up. Let's pray. I mean, that's just how it goes. Fine with me. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, do any of you feel kind of a holy dissatisfaction in your soul? Do you feel kind of a constriction? Do you feel kind of a dissatisfaction? Do you feel like the, the, the birth has not come? The most miserable I've ever seen the, my female friends be is in that eight and a half month. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, love them. Little sweet angels, just cute little, you know, horns and eyes, the stuff out of the eyes, chairs flying across. Why? They're giving birth. Nothing feels right. I've never been pregnant. Can, I, can, anybody, can anybody who's been pregnant say amen? Nothing feels right. If that's how you feel now, you're giving birth to something. You're, you're moving to the next level. And God is trying, not just on these Wednesday nights, but here in this church in this season, to give us a battle plan. If the people, as one people, where? I don't know. Over lunch, in your family, in the ministry, whatever, wherever it is. I don't know. Where, whatever you represent, whatever you have a, a, a deep inner burden and burn to see destiny fulfilled. If the people will show up as one people if they will seek the mind of God for his will, if they will find the promises of God that guarantee the fulfillment of that will, and if they will plan for a long-term prayer strategy, we're going to pray until it happens. And by the way, we're not real good at the long term, are we? We're kind of, you know, I'm going I'm to seek the Lord. And I go for 20 minutes and let's go eat. You know what I mean? I'm just done. And that's, that's not what we need here. I'm going to tell you, close with this story, because I'm going to come back and, and do part two next week on this. I have a friend whose name is K.P. Yohanan, and he runs a Christian ministry training school in India. When the, when the students graduate, the school gives each student a shovel. Their assignment is to seek the Lord about what village in India they're supposed to go to. They leave from graduation at the school, they take their shovel and their suitcase and their Bible, and they go to the village God's shown them. And the first thing they do is they dig their grave. And they say over that grave, this is what all of them do, I am here until the Spirit of God transforms this village, or I am laid in this grave. Now that is a covenant. 
and they begin to pray, and they begin to minister, and they begin to pray in other people, and they begin to see conversions. And as soon as they have enough believers, they get a prayer covenant going. And I, I know that we all identify India as, as, a, as a place that's, you know, got challenges and spiritual darkness and so on, but there is a massive outpouring of God's Spirit going on in India. And these kids, with their shovels and their hole, I mean, villagers later go, what'd you dig that hole for out there, Pastor? I mean, what, you know, what's up with that? It's because God might just be looking for some people whose hearts are fully committed to him, who are not in it for a spiritual flash, who are not in it for the short term, who are not in it just to make it from week to week with some kind of a, a spiritual uplift. No, we're here for the purposes of the living God in one of the most powerful cities in the world. We're here for the deliverance of family lines. We're here for the deliverance of people of every gender and ethnicity and background and nation. We're here to model something. Why do we have this building? Why do we have these pastors? Why do we have what we have? The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth to strengthen those who are fully committed to him. I would like to see us in the coming months plant our feet. Say, Lord, show us what you want to do and then take hold of it tenaciously. Get with the believers who are like-minded in your company, family, whatever you are representing, whatever you're praying for. Take hold of God's purposes and watch the Lord shake the earth. We do a lot of complaining in the American church, and we do a lot of sort of, uh, you know, worrying, prophetic worrying, Jim calls it. He's a prophet, he can say that. Prophetic worrying. But maybe it's time to say, I don't care how dark it has gotten. God responds to his people. History is not ruled by the majority. It's ruled by the dedicated minority. Let's be that dedicated minority and change the history that we despise in our times. Father, in the name of Jesus, give us practical strategies in our lives now. Move us together in great prayer covenants, O oh God. Cause us to realize what you've done. Lord, you said... If these people put their heads together and speak as one voice and agree, nothing will be impossible to them. Lord God, I don't want to end this year the way I began this year. I don't want to live in five years the way I was living five years ago. Move us to new heights. Do new things. We're going to pray and fast and take hold of the scriptures and take hold of Jesus and be led by the Spirit intercession so that we can give birth to a generation-changing outpouring of the Spirit of God. This is our prayer. And everyone together said, amen. Love you.